the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce today's guest, do you want to throw out, I've got a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing me a book if you're enjoying the podcast content. I'm very excited to have Stephen Zepke joining me today. Stephen, I, I'll let you introduce yourself. I uh, don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to try and say the Spanish title of my book either. Right. Because I'll <laughs> it up as well. Yeah, don't um, feel obligated. Whatever you, whatever you feel is, uh, <laughs> is appropriate. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an independent researcher. I live in Vienna. I have done for many years now, but via time in Sydney, Australia, and, and originally from New Zealand. I work, I came up kind of through Deleuze Guattari, but always with a focus on, on art. I had a few few books recently. Um, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting to get the first copies of a new book called Head in the Stars, Essays on Science Fiction, which is, as it says, Essays on Science Fiction. Maybe we can return to that a bit later in the podcast. Yeah. And then the Book of Philosophy, Sublime Art Towards and Aesthetics of the Future, um, which uh, came out in 2017. Uh, along with an edited volume, a uh, volume I edited with Sjorn van Tunen called Art History After Deleuze. Those are really the most recent things. So Stephen and I, I think we're going to focus a lot on discussion of Guattari's, uh, Felix Guattari's screenplay, A Love of UIQ, and sort of, because uh, I think it's a really good expression, I think, of a lot of the of schizoanalysis and a lot of Deleuze-Guattarian concepts. And then there's there's plenty of fun sci-fi references and influences that we can discuss and so it should be an interesting interesting chat i think especially given your background with the arts and studying deleuze and guattari through through artwork which i think is i'm definitely interested i actually thought it was quite interesting that guattari had an interest in filmmaking because that's that's sort of ultimately kind of why I ended up starting the podcast to begin with, because I was a, a frustrated filmmaker that trying to work a 40 hour, you know, support myself through a 40 hour a week job and, and do filmmaking on your own is, is pretty tough, I think. And so I decided to channel that and a uh, podcast was sort of a way for me to channel that creative effort and energy in lieu yeah, of I mean, filmmaking. I, you know, I would say for Deleuze and Guattari that art is one of the most important, I would maybe even stretch it to say the most important kind of political slash ontological mechanism. You know, Guattari's last book is kind of subtitled An Ethico-Aesthetic Paradigm. I mean, we can talk a little bit more detail maybe about what that really means to him, but yeah. I think at least for Deleuze, you know, who had a pretty... I was going to say conservative, I don't know, let's say traditional appreciation of the arts. 
it means the same kind of artwork that you see in the museums, right. basically, you know. I mean, it's crazy with the cinema books because you basically, if you just look at the films that he looks at, you're basically looking at a classical introduction to the history of film. Right. There's a little bit of avant-garde film in there, but not very much. Yeah. I know he mentions last year, was last year at Marion Bat, which is one oh, of yeah, my favorites. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, that's, he loves, he loves, he loves it. Yeah, definitely. I have a plan to go through each of the films in the cinema books that are referenced. <laughs> well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be the first person to have that idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then I looked at the list and I was like, oh, this, yeah, it'll supply me with endless content at least if I need a. Oh, look, I, I, I had the same idea and you know, I, I was on, I had a really good go at it. I was watching five, six films a weekend for oh, wow. a long time <laughs> and yeah, I didn't manage it. So. Good luck. Right. It's funny too. I should have sent you this. I didn't think to do this, but I actually, so in grad school, I did my own five minute version of Blade Runner. (laughs) I (laughs) really should have sent you that. Yeah, you definitely should have sent me that because we're going to mention Blade Runner more than once tonight, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps to start us off and I think to at least give listeners who haven't read the screenplay a bit of grounding in, in terms of plot or what the overall story arc is for a love of of uiq yeah i mean i think you could uh yeah sure i mean a couple of things like a kind of kind of important facts to just start it off with is that he guatari wrote the screenplay with another filmmaker an american leftist filmmaker robert kramer who made some some amazing films and um actually wasn't the first screenplay that that they wrote together and the screenplay that we have that has been published as far as i understand it is a version of the screenplay that was sent in 1987 was presented in a funding application in France, an unsuccessful funding application. So I think that that's kind of important to mention as well because it's a cyberpunk film and, of course, 987 places it pretty much in the, you know, in the middle or in the early to middle part of the the kind of high period for, for cyberpunk films. So if we, we remember that um, William Gibson's book, Neuromancer, which is arguably the kind of beginning of the cyberpunk thing is, is I think that's 82 maybe. And Blade Runner that you mentioned is 84. And uh, there were various other kind of notable cyberpunk films around that time and then developing through the eighties into the nineties. So, yeah, I mean, we'll come back to the to the cyberpunk thing, but that that's like the first the first thing to mention is that the whole vibe of the film is very much within the the, the cyberpunk the cyberpunk kind of aesthetic. The opening words, you know, setting the scene: "It's winter at the twilight hour, said to lie between dog and wolf, an unreal atmosphere. Clumps of blackened earth absorb the colour of the frost that covers it in patches." So it's got this kind of noirish kind of um, kind of feel about it. I think Blade Runner was definitely a reference. Maybe later we can talk about Guattari's own kind of uh, thoughts about Blade Runner. So that's it. And and, and the storyline is, is also pretty classic cyberpunk in its kind of more general details because obviously it's it's going to get pretty weird later on. But the, the story starts with a journalist who is uh, basically escaping 
with a, a young scientist that coming from Belgium, I think, we're in a plane. And the young scientist, Axel, has been working on, he's been trying to communicate with a infinitely small entity. It's not ever really said that it's an alien, but it's some kind of non-terrestrial being uh, that has been discovered and that Axel, the young scientist, has been communicating with. They kind of get out of the plane and go into town. The, the kind of cops are on their tail, and they end up kind of more by accident than anything else in a commune in a rundown part of town. And Axel makes contact with Janice, who is a attractive young punk DJ who lives at the lives at the commune along with various other 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 people and they start at the commune they they start uh, experimenting again with uh, with this uh, the infra quark for quark being as it's called this infinitely small being and they they begin to they begin to um communicate with it and this happens in a, in a kind of classically cyberpunk way which is that they basically get all of this digital technology and they kind of DIY it together and um, produce a kind of, you know, a kind of technological mechanism through which this being is is able to speak, basically. And this is, is kind of the point where the storyline starts to deviate from the classic cyberpunk story. And what emerges is an emotional relationship between the infraquark being and Janice, the, the punk DJ. And basically what happens is that the entity falls in love with Janice and kind of goes through a very convulsive kind of teenage romance, uh, which is dominated by jealousy. I was going to say by his jealousy. It's not really, there's some discussion in the screenplay about about the gender of UIQ. UIQ has to basically learn about gender difference right? and finds it a very strange and, and, and kind of ridiculous idea. But in the end, behaves towards Janice in a kind of, I mean, I would say a kind of male way. I don't know, maybe right. that's just me. I, I kind of really like that. Yeah, I did. You know. Well. It gets really jealous about Janice's relationship with Axel, the young scientist. It then takes on the, it, it sort of gets a young girl who's in the commune to kill a homeless person, a homeless man, and then kind of reanimates the body and, 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 and projects himself into that man, Bruno, uh, who then kind of goes on the rampage a bit in a kind of jealous fury. Uh, chasing Janice, who, who's the kind of exponent of free love in the commune and um, isn't very impressed with uh, UIQ's jealousy. Uh, in the background, the kind of cops or the state are closing in on the commune. They're looking for UIQ or they don't really know it's UIQ, but they're looking for this disturbance because what UIQ has already managed to do is disrupt the radio transmissions and caused a whole lot of chaos out in the in the real world, as it were. So they're kind of trying to hunt him down. It's also an interesting part of the story that we could maybe come back to is that, you know, cyberpunk is really a kind of expression of late capital and in particularly 
corporate capital, and that's not really a factor in this story at all. So the the kind of the baddies, if you can put it like that, <laughs> are um are the state and maybe some kind of secret security agency or something. It's not really played out very clearly who or what they are, but but they're definitely, let's say, police of some some type. So they're closing in on the commune. What happens then? Oh, the commune is kind of attacked by the police and burnt. But in the meantime, they escape with UIQ. But that's not, that's all kind of taking place to the side, really, because the main content of the story is about this kind of emotional relationship that UIQ has developed uh, for Janice and her rejection of him, basically, uh, as being, you know, she doesn't, simply doesn't like his kind of jealousy and rage. And so, in a kind of, it's not really clear in the screenplay, but I guess you could sort of read in between the lines, you could say that he comes up with this kind of classically teenage strategy of basically trying to blackmail humanity into giving him Janice. And so what he does is he causes this huge kind of global mutation where people start to grow aspects of different animals. There's actually lots of fish, but there's also some some insect eyes. One of the characters gets uh, fly eyes. Another character gets dog ears. There are more more sort of radical changes where people have to breathe underwater and all these kinds of these. This is happening on a massive global scale and. To stop it, he basically demands that Janice undergoes a kind of operation where she has digital technology implanted into her brain in order in enabling uh, UIQ and her to somehow meld or become the same entity. This seems to be the implication of it all. And so Janice then agrees to undergo this operation and in return, UIQ agrees to stop or to reverse the mutations. And the final scene, which is this sort of very poignant scene, interesting scene, we can talk more about it, is her kind of stumbling around without any clear identity in the way that she speaks. She seems to be speaking from her perspective, UIQ's perspective, perhaps from other people's perspective. And she finally jumps off the side of a building in an attempt to commit suicide, but although her skull seems to break and she seems to be bleeding profusely, she gets up again and continues to walk. And um, the final line of the screenplay is, this is uttered by her, might he give her back her death at least. Okay, that's a kind of very rough account of the story. <laughs> but it, you think, did a great job, I think. Okay. <laughs> in any case, there's a few interesting things about it. You know, I actually hadn't read it for quite some years before, you know, this. And, and so when I reread it again, one of the things that really jumped out at me, which I hadn't really maybe realized so much before, is that it's really full of comedy. And there's a lot of kind of slapstick. You know, Axel yeah. is like this kind of gymnast guy who's like doing <laughs> backflips all over the place and stuff like that. And is quite a clown, actually. And this sort of state security apparatus is also pretty much played for laughs. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, it was a lot funnier than I remembered it. 
it's weird mixture because the ending is so kind of horrible in a way, and yet it's mediated and it has this kind of noirish feel, especially at the beginning. But you know, in a lot of the middle sections and especially with the mutations, it's really quite comic. And then did you did that? Was that something that you kind of felt strongly? There was a monkey randomly yeah, thrown right, into the, the film, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> which was curious. And yeah, the back flipping axle was a strange kind of note. I don't know. I thought the central idea, like the UIQ aspect and um, kind of exploring Watari's concepts through that was the more interesting part. The execution in terms of the actual screenplay, I thought was, I felt it was a bit goofy and some of the elements of it. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty goofy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't or quite che- know. Not cheesy. I don't. Not cl- not quite cliche, but just the weird sort of eighties. Yeah, it definitely had a very eighties. When you think yeah. of the eighties, it's kind of this weird quasi. Like there's a there's a certain whimsy to it. In the sense, the other day I was listening to, I forget what new wave band, but it has. I'm confounded by the world that existed that these people decided i want to make this music (laughs) even though i enjoy the music thinking to be in their shoes and think oh i want to make this music i can't fathom it i just can't i'd love to know what it was you know because um, i was it was maybe a tears for fears song i'm even thinking of like uh (laughs) my favorite is what is it? Um, it's my life. Talk, talk. Okay, now we have a generation gap, right? Because <laughs> this kind of stuff, it was like, I, I, I was like a young person trying to be cool at that time when it came right. out. And yeah. I was like on the kind of alternative side. And so right. I regarded all of that with a great deal of scorn. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and then sense. it came around again. And all yeah. of a sudden, it was like people that I was trying to be like when I was that age were now totally into it. And it was like the coolest thing you could imagine. Right. And for me, that's really a super double take, right? Because it's like, hang on a second. The first time this came out, this was definitely not cool. At least I didn't think it was cool. I thought it was really uncool. It was like mainstream pop, you know, and now it's totally cool. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it, for me, it could be nostalgia because there were so many songs that I heard, you know, on films or commercials or whatever the case may be but you know i was so young that i don't remember i didn't remember you know who did that song so i will often i've often heard these new wave songs and i'm like oh that i know this song i remember the song but i actually kind of like (laughs) i don't know i like the uh i like the 80s synth music is uh there's something about those analog synths that i enjoy well you know i mean the cyberpunk films have a great tradition of incorporating musicians into the underground group that's fighting against the totalitarian corporate capital entities. And um, so maybe, you know, maybe I can't remember his name, but the really super attractive guy from Tears for Fears, he could play Axel maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I always remember with Tears for Fears, there was like one guy who was like incredibly good looking and the other guy who was kind of good looking, but not as good looking as the other guy. I can't remember the names. Okay, I mean, it's interesting to think about the, the cyberpunk thing because, you know, it's kind of, I mean, the, the thing about the screenplay which really resonates with the, the history of cyberpunk is this idea that 
digital technology is going to unleash some kind of pathological forces because this is a this is a storyline that happens in many films and if you personally my all-time favorite cyberpunk film although it has a different feeling to you know to many of the others is Videodrome, David Cronenberg's Videodrome and that's a classic one where kind of pathological forces are basically channeled through a kind of merge between screen technology and human fantasy and in Videodrome it all is done at super nasty because it's like some kind of um, nasty porn virus or something. I don't know how you'd even describe it. It's a pretty weird film. It's basically the idea that screen technology in particular is able to produce some kind of very radical transformation that is about unleashing forces which would otherwise be repressed. So it kind of goes in two directions. It plugs into the kind of generalized social fear about, at that time, television. But it's the same kind of fear that people have now about the internet. It's really just a, a kind of fear of new media. And that's actually thematized in Videodrome because the main character is the, is the head of a, of a private television channel. But in the other direction, there is this kind of unleashing of, you know, in Videodrome, it's not so clearly signaled as being the unconscious but we, we we could call it the unconscious for for lack of for the, for the sake of what we're talking about in relationship to the guatari screenplay but the thing about videodrome which is so interesting which you know guatari's screenplay really kind of connects to for me and i'm just trying to think i think videodrome is about 84 so it actually precedes the guatari this the uiq but to what extent you know, it's possible to say that Guattari saw Videodrome in Paris. I don't know about that. 83. Okay, yeah. Videodrome's 83, so it does precede the UIQ, but okay, no no evidence that I'm aware of that Guattari actually saw it. Although, you know, BFO does talk about sharing an interest in science fiction with Guattari and that they, uh, that they used to talk about it quite a lot. In any case, at the end of Videodrome, uh, there is this quite extraordinary scene where the main character shoots himself in the head, but it's not really clear whether he's going to die or whether he's not going to die or get reborn in some different way. In fact, it's not even really clear whether there is any longer a kind of cause and effect temporal relationship because time seems to be completely out of joint and we seem to have maybe moved beyond the kind of world where there is such a thing as life and death anyway. That kind of has a kind of echo in the UIQ screenplay, but, you know, it's not quite as radically played out because in the UIQ screenplay, it's played as a tragedy, whereas in Videodrome, we seem to be beyond any kind of easy emotional description of the situation at all. As a viewer, I think it's it's very unclear what, what we're meant to think. It's super open. You can think it's disgusting. You can think it's fantastic. Uh, you can think it's sad. You can think it's, it's great. It's unclear. In any case, reading again the script for the UIQ, it struck me that there's a, it's a, it's a kind of a morality play in a way, but it's like a morality play of, of, you know, of a 68 branch guy, um, <laughs> who's like, you know, on the radical left, because, you know, when I read it before, but this time to me, it really seemed like, you know, what was being demonstrated was the really bad results 
that happen when the unconscious, let's say, you know, UIQ is a kind of a figure for the unconscious, where the unconscious gets kind of channeled into a individualized subjectivity. So when it gets channeled into a single subject, a gender, gen, a, a, a genderized subject, and when this emotion of love kind of gets over determined by these immature desires and uh, expectations, let's say, uh, and jealousy becomes strong and so does rage and uh, these kinds of things. And I think in a way that the, the screenplay, this is how it seems to me now, is a, is a kind of, yeah, like a, a very dark morality play about how things go wrong uh, when desire is captured by the individual subject and especially by kind of bourgeois expectations about the, you know, primary couple. Right. So the man and the woman, you know, the love relationship, it has to be protected. The rivals have to be fended off. Um, that brings out all the worst kind of aspects um, this kind of um, the jealousy, as I mentioned, but also this kind of bizarre strategy of blackmailing the world into giving him back his lover. It's a kind of horror show of the romance, you know, and the ending is just straight up cruelty. You know, I mean, the figure at the end is absolutely destroyed. Clearly, she has aspects of schizophrenic personality because she no longer has a fixed identity. Right. Um, but at the same time, this is not figured as in any kind of liberatory way. She's not liberated in the slightest. She's become totally oppressed by the unconscious, basically, by UIQ, if we take UIQ to be a, a figure for the unconscious. So I don't know, that, that kind of, I think I, I mentioned to you before, but that made me go back to the biography of Deleuze and Guattari. And, 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 you know, when you read a little bit about what's happening to Guattari in the mid to late 80s, it's like he's having major problems with depression. He's got major problems with his second wife. He's experiencing jealousy because he has an open relationship with his wife. Um, but he himself is also maintaining numerous relationships at the same time. And so, in a kind of very reductive way, you know, you can read the screenplay as a kind of as some kind of biographical expression of difficulties that were going on in his own oh, life. Oh yeah, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But at the same time, there's, a, there's another aspect to the story which I, I think also connects really strongly to Guattari's ideas about schizoanalysis, and these also have a strong biographical content. And, and that is that, you know, schizoanalysis, it, it, it's, it kind of starts from this idea that a radical break or interruption into normality or into kind of institutionalized processes is the beginning of a kind of eruption of desire. So that desire can be freed from its containment inside traditional subjectivities or traditional social structures and it can you know proliferate as difference through this kind of break that is introduced into let's say normal transmission this is definitely the way that uiq is figured at the beginning it's a kind of a revolutionary 
entity, if you like. It like it has a power that doesn't belong to this world, and it, it, it sort of is able to at will break everything normal with this world. And it's not by accident, of course, that it becomes manifested through the operations of the commune. It's clearly a kind of, you know, quite explicit sort of political association. And I think that's that's very close to Guattari's understanding of, of the practice of schizoanalysis, which is, despite Guattari's very elaborate vocabulary, is also for him a very practical thing, which he's doing all the time at the clinic at Labour, because he's a practicing psychoanalyst. And he also... You know, he talks about this in a very practical way because he says that, you know, schizoanalysis, one of the ways that it's really different from psychoanalysis is that it rejects the idea of the, you know, the kind of absent analyst, the analyst who doesn't say anything, who doesn't commit themselves in any way, whose subjectivity is, is, is only there as, as kind of absent, as a, as a screen for the analyst and to project everything onto. And then a way for the analyst to be able to kind of see and maybe come to grips with some of those projections. Guattari says explicitly and says, no, sometimes the analyst has to intervene and has to stake, you know, put a stake in the game and has to actually say, oh, yeah, do this. So the example that he talks about, and this is a biographical example, is about a patient, but it was also true of Guattari, who says, oh, I'd like to learn to drive. And Guattari talks about how important it was that he learned to drive after his first marriage broke up, uh, and that this was a way that he was able to overcome the depression that came with the breakup of his marriage, and how he was able to suddenly kind of assert himself into all of these areas of life that had previously seemed to be inaccessible to him. And apparently he, he had a he had a, a BMW, um, which was the, the standard car of the left in, in Europe at the time because it was known, the BMW, as the Beider-Meinhof-Wagon. <laughs> and that was because apparently Beider-Meinhof always used a convertible, usually white BMW as their getaway car from whatever <laughs> action they were doing. And so this became... A kind of popular way to express your solidarity with the oh, that's funny. people. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So apparently, Guattari had a had a BMW. I don't know if that's true or not, but I heard it somewhere along the line. But I definitely know other figures, prominent figures in the left, had BMW um, BMW convertibles. In fact, I, I actually drove in with uh, Harun Faraki, um, a German filmmaker who is uh, one of the '68 generation, in his BMW convertible that was nice yes but so anyway this is a kind of an example of a kind of pragmatics that exists in the schizoanalysis which is is i think a super interesting super interesting thing and which comes out in the screenplay and in, in, in the way in which this uh interruption if you like because uiq interrupts the radio signals the communication right. signals which you know the world kind of runs on and this interruption into our world of this super intelligent, somehow super powerful thing which doesn't exist as an entity in the sense that we know it, is able to then kind of produce these extraordinary transformations. I think that's, you know, that's kind of in a nutshell the idea of schizoanalysis or of chaosmosis. 
uh, as as Guattari also calls it, that there is this sort of introduction of this this break in normal transmission, if you want to call it like that, and that this break is then able to uh, allow desire to proliferate and find expression in all sorts of, of unusual and different ways. Um, but not just that, because that's only half the story, yeah. um, that, that it has to be able then to proliferate. And that's where, you know, libidinal economy and political economy kind of come together because it's all very well to be able to make the break, but the break has to kind of perpetuate itself. Uh, not in the sense that this thing is going to be repeated over and over and over or it's going to become popular or mainstream, but that this process of the break is able to be repeated. So that that's the difference in repetition idea, that it's not about repeating a certain difference. It's about repeating the process of differentiation or yeah. the process of producing a difference and that's the kind of political aspect of the thing you know for for Guattari but and, and for Deleuze as well I think art is a super privileged mechanism by which this uh, by which this process can take place in the in, in the screenplay this is kind of this is all this is the sort of optimistic first part where everything is very sort of light and yeah. And, and very playful and and everything is figured in a in a very positive way the character of Jan- Janice is, is you know this kind of very open sexually free young woman um, Axel is this kind of strange clownish amusing brilliant scientist uh, the commune itself is kind of seems to be um, you know, a, a well-organized, clean kind of environment. One of the main characters is a is, is a young girl who seems to be very self-confident and capable. It's it's racially mixed. One of the characters is black. Um, you know, it's all good. But with this unleashing of this unconscious, you know, of this desire of your IQ, it, it kind of all goes wrong, and um, and everything everything turns weird. It's interesting. It it, it makes me think of um, I've seen one of Robert Kramer's films. I'm just trying to think of which one it was. What the name of it was? It was. It's about the counterculture in America. Milestones. I've seen Milestones. It's it's a very long, very long film. Um, but the thing that is most interesting about the film is that when I was watching it, it took about 45 minutes before I understood that it's a drama and not a documentary. And the reason why I realized this, I mean, maybe I wasn't paying very close attention, but it's basically just sort of conversations and real life incidents of people, um, who are all who were all part of the counterculture in the late 60s. And it's basically showing what's happened to them and what they're doing in the mid-70s. And some of them have moved towards activism and the union movement, and some of them have, who now live in kind of small 
communes of five or six people. Some people, some of the characters are sort of travelers uh, and so forth and so on. But after about 45 minutes of the film, the film's well over two hours, maybe three hours long, there's a rape scene. And it's like, that was the point where I realized, oh, it's acted. Because obviously in a documentary, you're not going to have a rape scene. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because in a way, UIQ kind of reminds me of that experience, if not the narrative itself, which is that, you know, everything is looking, you know, very nice and it's clearly a kind of very positive portrayal of leftist culture. But then all of a sudden something erupts that kind of turns it bad. And what erupts basically is kind of sexual desire and the sexual desire kind of gets out of control in a bad way. So what does that mean, out of control in a bad way? Out of control in a bad way means that it starts traveling through the forms of subjectivity that usually control it. (laughs) You know, so that's the kind of critical aspect of it, right? Which is that it's like this kind of, heteronormative desire that is dominated by or is is kind of produces emotion emotions which are not controllable by the male and so in a way it's a kind of a nightmare portrayal of a normal bourgeois relationship and that's kind of it's kind of interesting that that I mean, when I think about why, why would he choose to do it like that? And I, I think maybe one of the reasons why you would do it like that is because it's just easier to portray that in a kind of negative way than it would be to do it in a positive way. Because to do it in a positive way, you're having to start to represent things that maybe don't previously exist. And yeah, I think any artist will tell you that's much, much harder than producing a critique of what does yeah. exist. Especially, and obviously, yeah. especially in the area era of capitalist realism. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially if you're, you know, planning to make a kind of avant-garde independent film with maybe not such a big yeah. budget. <laughs> and I guess that was the critique of Jameson in a sense, right? Is like sci-fi can only talk about current culture. It can't really, or that that's what it's ultimately focused on is the critiquing the existing rather than creating something new and interesting. Or yeah. I mean, that's, that's really super interesting because I think it has a kind of ambiguous relationship to Jamison's position. I mean, Frederick Jamison, you know, wrote this fantastic book about science fiction, uh, the archeology span of the future where he's actually, pretty critical of cyberpunk films. He just sees them as, as offering a kind of, he calls it a capitalist utopia. So, you know, for Jamison, all science fiction is a kind of utopian expression, but uh, he, he locates cyberpunk on the right in as much as it, it celebrates a kind of corporate, corporate power rather than really attacking it. And if we think about William Gibson's work, then there's always a kind of, you know, underground band of, of, of sort of resistance, but it's working not, it's not working explicitly against corporate interests. You know, they're often, it's often mercenary relationships or kind of relationships where they're helping each other or aspects of the corporate entity is being helped by the heroes of the story and so forth and so on. Jamison's idea of science fiction, he calls it, 
he calls it a, a form of cognitive estrangement is the term that he uses for science fiction. Basically, the two terms, cognitive and estrangement, they map onto the two terms, science and fiction. So it's cognitive in the sense that it's based on science. So it's based on a kind of realism. It's based in something that we understand as being real and possible in the world. And most science fiction has as part of its story a kind of scientific discovery that enables faster than light travel or something like that. And for Jamison, that's very important because that's what distinguishes it from fantasy because fantasy is based on magic and magic is not real. And that's basically for him the kind of genre distinction between the two. So it's cognitive in this sense, but then there is also this element which is not present. So it's not, it's not real in that sense. It's in the future. And this is what is able to kind of estrange us from the present. It's, you know, a term that clearly he's taking from the, from the Frankfurt school and in particular from Brecht, you know, the Verfremdungs effect. It's a kind of, you know, way of alienating the audience from their present conditions so right. that they're able to return to them at the end. Yeah, and that's okay. the fictional part of science gotcha. fiction. So under this understanding, you know, again, as I said, it's an understanding that draws very heavily on critical theory. Science fiction is not about the future. Science fiction is entirely about the present. So it's just a way of reflecting on our present conditions. And clearly, you know, this is both right in most cases of science fiction and also kind of depressing because as Jamison says very explicitly, science fiction is unable to imagine something that is truly other, that what this kind of structure, this reflective structure of science fiction means is that it can't ever really give us something that we don't somehow already know about. Yeah. So it can't give us the real alien. It can't give us the real new social system. It can't ever produce that. And, in fact, my book is in many ways orients itself directly against this idea and tries to show the ways in which certain science fiction films and texts are able to produce something new and right. they do produce a future which is based on this idea of an event, a kind of um, an idea that, that originally comes from Nietzsche and Nietzsche's idea of, of the future. but. You can also find in Foucault and Deleuze and Guattari and other thinkers like Badiou in a slightly different form as well. So in my, in, in, in the new book that I mentioned, Videodrome is a very important example of a film that is able to send us somewhere totally strange. And there are aspects of that in the screenplay as well, I think. So certainly this kind of explosion of mutations. Uh, that happens towards the end, which is has a strongly comic element, is also is is kind of in a way an event that lies outside of anything that we might be able to understand. And the whole idea of the infraquark universe also is a kind of uh, opening onto a kind of virtual possibility or a multitude of virtual possibilities. That's something that's emphasised in the screenplay that that. UIQ is capable of anything, that there are kind of no limits to it at all. Uh, and certainly the ending as well, you know, this strange subjectivity that is produced in Janus 
although it's figured in a quite a threatening kind of way, it, it, it's, it's, it's not something that we identify with or that we would want, but it's something that is not easily understood according to it to right. traditional ideas of characters or character development. These are aspects in which the screenplay is kind of pushing against this idea that science fiction is a kind of a, an analysis of the present. I also think the fact that there's no real effort to, to characterize or to sort of flesh out the opponents is, is another, it's not really critical in that way. It's not, it's not interested in social institutions really. It's also, I think, not really that interested in the setup in the commune either, which is, you know, I don't, it's hard to say from this distance, you know, but right. it kind of seems a little bit, it seems a little bit hokey, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm sure that, you know, the characters were often perhaps based on people that Guatari had a personal... <laughs> right, certainly <laughs> could have been, right. But in any case, I think that, you know, these are the two elements of the screenplay which are kind of in a balance. That, that, and, and, and this, I think, can be understood in a much wider sense in terms of Guattari's larger project about schizoanalysis and chaosmosis, is that the, the two elements that are in balance are basically the creative, uh, let's say, creative force of libidinal desire and the kind of repressive, the repressive aspects of subjectivity that channel it and kind of control it, even though the outbursts of UIQ, these kinds of adolescent outbursts that don't feel so much like control in the sense of the narrative, but I think we can understand it from a more theoretical perspective as being a, a negative portrayal of what happens to desire when it travels through traditional subjectivities. Right. Would that be the sort of subjective black hole effect, perhaps? That's kind of what I was thinking as far as yeah. the sort of hetero heterosexual kind of framework for uh, for desire, sexual desire and libidinal expenditure. I mean, the black hole, the black hole figure is not one that, you know, I, I use a lot. I think it's just, it's just like, to draw from like the dictionary of Deleuze and Guattari. I felt like this sort of described a lot about that heteronormative sexuality. Um, and I'll read. A social or psychic black hole can either trap subjectivity in its deadly grip or, if navigated successfully, can provide energy and emit semiotic elements which enable liberating lines of flight. So I think that is a great expression of maybe UIQ broadly because it, so on one hand, you do have that sort of heteronormative sexual thing with Janice. But on the other side, the potential, at least, I think, for the inner subjectivity Whenever you have UIQ and Janus merging, even though that's sort of played for horror here, there is, you know, maybe, I don't know, that's perhaps the, the line of flight that <laughs> remains to be determined as to whether that can lead to something positive or, or negative. Yeah, I, I think there's, those are, there's, there's like two moments where this liberatory line is kind of signaled and they're both ambiguous but i think that their ambiguity comes from the fact that we identify with the repressive forces and maybe you could argue that this is deliberate strategy on behalf of the screenplay that it wants us to reflect upon our own position and to see the way in which we are you know disgusted or 
upset by these outcomes yeah. and that we struggle to kind of see them in a positive light. And so these two, right. these two moments are the mutational, the, the kind of proliferation of mutations that occurs, which is, you know, I, I think remarkable in a way because none of the characters really seem that worried about them. Like everything kind of carries on as normal, even though these people are having these kind of having these extraordinary changes uh, taking place. And then the other one is Janice at the end where she's this kind of zombie-like figure who's neither her nor UIQ or maybe both or maybe neither or it's really not clear. And so perhaps you could argue that we're not really able to grasp or to embrace the the kind of the liberatory potential of these positions, but it's a difficult one to take because it's, it seems as if the the screenplay is is kind of pretty clear in the way that it figures these moments that it it does you know but but maybe that's the point right maybe that's the point the point is is that there are no pure moments anyway right that there are there are never there are never these moments where we are you know the the line of flight is 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 always a transformation that you know carries with it where it left yes because it's not something it's it's not that you know you have a kind of bad situation or, or a kind of controlled situation or a repressed situation and then the line of flight kind of separates a little bit of that and then takes that off to the promised land that's that's not how it works because the line of flight is involving everything um, and that's why it can turn into a black hole because it can it, it can go wrong and it can it can you know suck everything into a bad place. So I think maybe that's more the way to look at it. Always got these two sides that you know it's always it's always about struggle. I mean that's like a, a super basic political point, right? But I mean it's not about a kind of ecstatic hallucination of a kind of utopian state that's not what the line of flight is about at all it's about a real world struggle which attempts to liberate material from you know structures which are containing and controlling it and which are reducing its ability to invent itself and that's basically what the kind of liberatory ambitions of schizo of schizoanalysis are is that they are about it's not about a program it's not about saying well you know this is the end these are the means whatever you know this is how we're going to get there this is what we want to achieve it's not about that at all because that's just another way of containing potential it's about liberating the fullest amount of potential in any given situation and we don't know where that's going to go. Right. And, you know, sometimes we're going to go somewhere good, sometimes we're not. And in any case, it's probably going to be a mixture of the two. And we're going to have to kind of deal with that. And when you start talking about it like that, it sounds like, oh, shit, that sounds like my life, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the kind of trick in the way with Deleuze and Guattari. And with Guattari especially because the vocabulary is so intimidating that, you know, you have to try and think about it in terms of sort of real-world situation because yeah. otherwise it just becomes a kind of 
super abstract intellectual operation that you know is kind of diverting or fun, but it's not really. Yeah, um, it doesn't really have a grip, you know. It's like everyone has their story about their, I, I always call them conversion stories, you know, how they come to the philosophers that for them are the, the, the most important. And when I started out, I, I was super into Lacan and, and Derrida right up to my masters. I, I, I was fully into them and it, and it was just a pure kind of narcissism. It was like the only thing that I was really interested in was just sort of understanding them as a personal challenge to my intelligence, right? It was like I just had to kind of prove myself that I could work out what the hell was going on with them. And then a very good friend of mine said to me, you know, read this and it was a thousand plateaus. And I started reading, I'm in my early 20s at this point, I started reading and I'm like, oh my God, this is like the first time that I've read philosophy and it's about me. <laughs> They're writing about my life, you know, and that was it. And then I was totally into them from that point on. And that's always been a kind of uh, a way that I've always used to try and approach what is often very difficult conceptual language is to try and think, okay, how does that? Yeah. How does that work for me? And, um, you know, the art thing is, is one way that you can think about it like that. So maybe with the screenplay, it's not even really the right way to think about it. It's not actually what does it mean? What is the narrative? What is the meaning of the narrative? It's, it's more about like, okay, so what does it make us feel? Because that's always the way that Guattari is going to talk about art to lose as well. It's all about sensation. That's the underlying definition of art for both of them. And so the question is, you know, can it make me feel something that I haven't felt before? That would be like maybe a really super simple way of, of, of defining art for Deleuze and Guattari. And, you know, I think if you think about it like that, UIQ does produce quite strange affects. And it's a quite a strange you know, object in terms of its emotional affect. It's, it's not a traditional, it's not a traditional, uh, cyberpunk story. Right. Cause I think and, typically you have the, in cyberpunk or usually have that character or the te the technology is already, it's, a, it's matured. And, and what I think is interesting here is you get sort of an exploration, almost sort of drawing on like a psychoanalytic developmental process for UIQ as it learns sort of its own subjectivity. Like it reminds me of kind of this, how children are sort of alien and then they get, they become subjectified. Right. And then right. they even, go, even going into the Oedipal. And I think you can kind of see that in the relationship right. with Janice, right. Falling into that Oedipal trap of. Because kids begin to understand, you know, what it is their parents want from them. Right. It's or called I, growing up. Yeah, or I think even the sense of children recognize the fundamental absurdity of existence or like it's something absurd or contradictory about existence because they're not so, I don't know, I guess maybe the machinic forces, machinic unconscious has less of a grip on their subjectivity or something like that. Because, right, kids say the darndest things. Kids don't know that they should lie the way that everyone else, everyone else knows that you have to lie. Right. <laughs> Right, yeah. And I mean, everybody knows that, you know, you shouldn't play with your genitals in public. Right. And on and on, <laughs> and so on and so on, of course. 
you know, you can just sort of see that same mechanism operating in a number of different ways. But I don't know, I just had that yeah. thought of it was kind of interesting to see like this, almost following like the Lacanian like mirror stage with the projections on the screens, like in whenever UIQ is sort of manifesting itself in its own image. Or, yeah, I, I think, know, would you, you call know, it the affect? Thing, the, the, thing that, the thing that's a little bit, I mean, the thing that's interesting about the screenplay is that it does go through the childhood development of UIQ, but it passes over that really, really fast. Right. And, and it's just there basically as a kind of logical part of the narrative, like, cause it's going to concentrate on teenage UIQ. Yeah. So yeah. somehow it has to show that UIQ, you know, went through a kind of developmental phase very fast, but then it just gets stuck in, on the teenage UIQ. Like that, that, that's the basically the focus of the, of the story and everything that happens is all explained by this kind of hormonal monster of UIQ uh, who can't control his emotions, whose emotions are not in any way reasonable and so forth and so on. So it's, you know, it's interesting because at the end of uh, Molecular Revolution in Brazil, uh, this, this book that I, I know you've mentioned it on the show before, uh, that, that is this very, I was looking at it again today. It's like this super weird book. Uh, but it's a book that was kind of, I don't know what you'd say. It was kind of partially written, partially edited by Sully Rolnick, a, a Brazilian academic who was very close to both Deleuze and Guattari and who had Guattari in Brazil and, and they did a big tour of Brazil together. And she documented a lot of the conversations that they had both together and with many other people and kind of put it all together in this book and towards the end of the book there's an account of a convers well it's yeah kind of an account of a conversation that they have about Blade Runner after they'd obviously gone to see the film together in Brazil and what's interesting about that is that she focuses on something that is often not the main thing that people focus on in Blade Runner uh, and that is, she focuses on the love relationship between Deckard and the replicant whose name now goes out of my head. Um, Rachel. Rachel, thank you. Whereas, you know, most people focus on the relationship between Deckard and Roy. Uh, yeah. and, Roy. Uh, and that's interesting. You know, Nick Land, for example, who was completely obsessed with Blade Runner, um, he's completely focused to the exclusion of almost all else on the relationship between Deckard and Roy, because he loves the idea of the replicant, you know, destroying the human. Um, and you know, that's, that's mostly the way that, that, that the film is read. Um, you know, people, people like the idea that, that Roy undergoes some kind of redemption by, not killing Deckard, which is basically a way that Roy shows his humanity, right? That he has mercy. Also not the way that Nick Land reads it either. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Nick Land, like, Nick Land reads it, you know, he kind of makes up his own ending, you know, like he, he reads it like that Roy killed Deckard, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's, that's the kind of, the kind of Nick Land interpretation of it in a way yeah. but but that's obviously not what actually happens in the film but uh, that's kind of interesting in a way too i mean in a sense um, he sort of does i think he sort of kills him like he could kill him but he chooses not to 
but he sort of kill he kills I think the the old Deckard. I, I think he he has an epiphany, right? He's perhaps at the end with Roy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. He does. No, absolutely. I mean, that's the point. You know, I mean, that's one of the morals of the story, right, is that Decker realizes that, you know, Roy has more humanity than he does because Roy chooses not to kill him even though he could. More human than human, right? Yeah. yeah. That's the... (laughs) Decker continues to want to kill him even though he can't. (laughs) But Sully Rolnick, with this book on Guattari, the the part where there is the discussion of Blade Runner actually has Sully Ronick's name on it. So Guattari's involvement in it is unsure, but it's sort of framed as if it's a conversation that they had after the after the film. And actually, in the sense of the narrative of the book, it's a discussion that they have while wait while they're waiting for Guattari to get on the plane to go back France. So there is a kind of romantic echo in the whole thing. Um, and and basically, the reading of Blade Runner that is offered is that it's all about the relationship of Deckard and Rachel. And it's all about this kind of more replicant than human human, which is Deckard, because, of course, he's the cold killer. And the kind of more human than replicant replicant, which is Rachel, uh, who okay. is, unav- is unaware of her, unaware of her status as being a replicant because she's been taught from the beginning that she is actually a human being. And what I think is really interesting about this is that this is exactly the line that the sequel follows, right? Because the sequel is all about the child that they oh, yeah. had. That's true. Okay. <laughs> so so the, the sequel kind of ignores Roy and focuses yeah. entirely on the romance. I mean, I love the sequel as well. I think the sequel is fantastic, but it's just interesting that it goes in that direction and it refuses the kind of more popular reception yeah. of the film, which is to be to kind of totally idolize the, the the kind of killing power of the replicants. But in any case, so surely Rolnick and, and Guattari are, are kind of obsessed about this love relationship and it's kind of maturity in a way because it's precisely through the love that both Deckard and Rachel are somehow able to overcome their own dilemma and, you know, basically head off into the into the into the sunset in order to start a new race. So it's like a super utopian story is the way that, that surely we're on and Guattari, you know, perhaps influenced by the, the melancholy the situation yeah. of the, <laughs> of the beautiful one month romance ending and Guattari flying back to his wife in Paris. But anyway, we shouldn't maybe speculate too much about that. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting kind of take on, Blade Runner that maybe in a you know feeds into how we could understand the UIQ narrative as right. a kind of uh, reverse or critical examination of love as a negative force rather yeah. than as a positive one. Love kind of contained within the, the bourgeois couple. What do you think about um, thinking about Dune as well? And I think. Have you read the series, the Dune series, by chance? Because I don't want to spoil necessarily one of the big, one of the huge <laughs> no, no, reveals of the series. I, I, I definitely read the series, but I was like a teenager, so my memories of it maybe are not very precise. I'm sort of thinking about. It's interesting. I think really the third book, Children of Dune, right? Because Leto, the son of Paul, merges with the Sand Trout to become 
whatever like i mean literally becoming animal and sort of this synthesis it's in that regard there's perhaps an overlap and i think too maybe added depth or dimension in that sense too because of the sort of his, the other memory <laughs> which is in itself kind of funny too psychoanalytically right because leto has all of the memories of his i think it, maybe it's just male ancestors or i can't remember if it's male and female all the way back through time well hang on he he, he has but he's what is it Benny Gesserit, right so doesn't that involve having some kind of well he has press prescience so he can see the future but... i mean the thing about the thing about june is is that it's it's an imperial story right, right. like it's an empire, and the story is that he becomes the emperor. It's almost like think. this Marxist, but it's like this Marxist-Leninist almost strain too, because you have the golden path that eventually. So the third book effectively ends where the son Leto has merged with the worms, and is now the emperor of the whatever the universe. I forget what it's even called there, Imperium or something of that nature. And his, he, I believe, takes his sister, his twin sister, as symbolically as wife, but then has another, the dis, the displaced monarchy previously has that son actually breed with his sister <laughs> to produce, I guess, the lo- a line of the family or something like that. And so then the fourth book picks up something like a thousand years later. And it's all about this this golden path <laughs> that humanity has to be forced to go through to so that it doesn't die or kill itself or or fizzle out in terms of evolution. He cr- causes the scattering to occur. So all of the humans are scattered throughout the universe and they try to get rid of prescient beings that can see the future to try to remove that. So in a sense, it's almost like this Maoist... <laughs> kind of top-down socialist approach, in a sense, through the figure of the despot who is the worm who, like, engineers his own death to create this process of new life. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, That's really interesting. I I mean, this kind of reading was way beyond me when I was a teenager, but (laughs) I've always meant to kind of reread it, but I, I never managed it. I'm just looking forward because now who is it who's making another yeah, version? Villanueve right now? Who did Villanueve who did the uh, yeah, yeah. Blade Runner sequel. Exactly. Be, of course it's it's delayed I think a year or so. Yeah, I'm 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 really excited about that. There's I'm also um there's also a new a new there's there's a, a film of Neuromancer that, that has been in the works oh, for really? a long time as well. I mean even though Johnny Mnemonic was based on a screenplay by William Gibson, but clearly has a lot of similarities with Neuromancer, but this, I think what this one is going to be... Um, is that the Keanu be, Reeves? Was he in? He was in Johnny Mnemonic, Jim- yeah. Okay, he was. As, as well as, as, well as um, oh man, now I've had a blackout. Henry Rollins was the, was the, the doctor, actually, who, who was helping the resistance. What's interesting about the screenplay is that it is... It does locate itself politically, you know, in the sense that the state is figured negatively, but it's mainly figured negatively by ridicule more than by its sinister nature. So, you know, one of the characters is called the president, and I always assumed that it was like the president, but when I read it again, 
more recently, it seems like it's the president of some kind of maybe security apparatus or something like that. But in any case, the point is, is that although the commune and to a certain extent UIQ is pitted against these state forces, the, the state forces are not really taken very seriously. Right. And so the politics of it is much more subjective. You know, it's much more about the kind of emotional life of right. the characters rather than, the, and that's what I mean about the commune too. The commune is not really, the commune is, is, is somehow necessary. Like it's, it's like a condition that enables UIQ to emerge. And the whole DIY tech thing is, is kind of something, something that emerges from the commune. Um, so the commune is in a way a condition, but it's not a major, it's not a major character in the narrative, if you want to put it like that. It's not, you know, it's kind of in the background, but it's, it's not something that's really focused on. So, you know, there are hints towards sort of the different personalities that are involved in the commune, but they're not really explored, you know, like, you know, the, the character of Robert is, is figured as somehow, you know, maybe more conservative, apolitical, you know, a little bit of a power freak, maybe, but it's not really hit hard, you know, this, this aspect. It's, it's kind of really in the background. So yeah. if you want to think about the politics of the, of the, the story, the, the politics are pretty much all focused on the subjective uh, relationships. Interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the emotional life of the characters and, you know, the kind of global events that are part of the story, which is the, you know, the, the, the kind of widespread mutations, these are, these are more or less magical in their explanation. It's simply the enormous power of UIQ, which is able to, to create them. It's not, it's not really, there's no, the technology doesn't really play any part. You know, it's not enabled through the digital network that UIQ manifests through. That's not really a factor. So it's really just this unexplained power of UIQ, which is able to do that. And it's not political in the sense that there are any, you know, recognizable political objectives that come out of the act because it's not done to create a better world or in the name of a, of a, of a, you know, I don't know, anarchist collective that is manifested in the commune or, you know, there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing about that at all. It's simply about the kind of the fact that UIQ is emotionally immature and completely out of control. So I don't know. It's weird. You know, it's, it's, it's weird to try and project a political, you know, a political meaning into the screenplay, except for this one that I, I, I think, you know, I talked about before in relationship to Videodrome, which I think does it re- in a really amazing way, which is simply to, to make it very unclear as to how we're supposed to identify with the characters and the story and, and, and to try and, you know, produce this kind of feeling of emotional uncertainty, uh, which is not you know, the nature of the cinematic commodity. That's not the usual form of our consumption of a cinematic object. Usually the cinematic object is full of certainty. (laughs) It's totally clear. 
who we're supposed to be, you know, rooting for, who we're supposed to be identifying with, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, you know, who's the love interest. It's all, you know, it's totally mapped out for us normally and we just have to go through the motions. That's part of the kind of passivity and brainwashing power of Hollywood. Uh, and this film completely rejects that. And I think that's where the strongest kind of political message maybe of it is, although it remains a very ambiguous one because the, let's say, outcome that is offered to us is very, you know, painful. <laughs> let's put it like that. So it, if that's the program, then it's pretty difficult for us to say that we're with it. I mean, nowadays, of course, there's probably plenty of people who wouldn't mind dog ears or some fish scales <laughs> or something like that. But, you know, but the kind of zombie schizo of Janice at the end, that's a difficult one to, yeah. to kind of put your name down for. But as I said, you know, super reminds me of, um, of Videodrome because I think at the end of Videodrome, we're, we're left in, in, in the same place. I think it's interesting. I'll draw again from the, the dictionary, the Deleuze and Guattari dictionary, because I think some of this text and he's, he's got a couple of quotes from Thousand Plateaus and Machinic Unconscious here as well. But I think some of this maps on a little bit to UIQ. And again, this is in con, this is in the context of the definite or discussion of black hole for Deleuze and Guattari. Subjective re resonance or subjective redundancy. This type of redundancy pulls subjectivity into a black hole of absolute deterritorialization. Guattari located this black hole at the center of his semiological and consciential triangles of redundancy. This type of redundancy characterizes the post-signifying regime of signs in which a sign detaches itself and takes off on a line of flight. And then this quote is from Thousand Plateaus. In the post-signifying regime, the redundancy is one of subjective resonance involving all shifters, personal pronouns, and proper names. There is a black hole attracting consciousness and passion in which they resonate. And then a subsequent quote from Machinic Unconscious. Redundancies of resonance tend to be emptied of their substance. Their own movement leads them to lose all support from stratification, flows, and codes. And so I see, I think especially maybe directly, this quote from A Thousand Plateaus about in the maybe this notion of Janice and IQ is this post-signifying regime. And they say here, redundancy is one of subjective resonance involving all shifters, personal pronouns, and proper names. There is a black hole attracting consciousness and passion in which they resonate. So I sort of see that as that merged Janice UIQ being and losing all of the stratification flows and codes. Definitely. I mean, I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think that, that definitely puts puts the finger on it. Um, I, I guess for me, what I find unusual about it is that this is not the way that Guattari normally reads artistic objects. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's a difference between making something and, and, and kind of just reacting to Talking it or, it, or yeah. appreciating it, you know, but he often, I mean, like, like many philosophers, you know, he, he has his kind of favorite artworks that he likes to come back to. You know, when I, I was reading today, where is it from? Yeah, it's from, it's from Chaosmosis. And, um, he's talking about 
the kind of power of the aesthetic object, I guess. And he, he's talking about, you know, again, very, very traditional objects, Debussy, blues. He's talking, he calls it a blazing becoming of Provence. I presume he's probably talking about Van Gogh. I mean, I just read a little bit of it. It's like, I've crossed a threshold of consistency before the hold of this block of sensation, this nucleus of partial subjectification. Everything was dull. Beyond it, I'm no longer as I was before. I'm swept away by a becoming other carried beyond my familiar existential territories. It's like, previous to that, he's talking about, you know, the Debussyist universe, a blues universe, a blazing becoming of Provence. It's like, it's almost ecstatic the way that he, he kind of describes it. And you often get that with, with Guattari, I think, when he's dealing with aesthetic objects is that there is this, this real transformative, but in a really super positive kind of sense, right? That it's, it's like a real, it's a very positive description. It's a very positive experience that art gives and i mean i think if you want to kind of look at it more analytically or conceptually you know i think there's not i'm not suggesting that there's a difference i'm just suggesting that the kind of emotional valence if you like of the experience is very different in uiq than it is in these other moments so yeah. i also think something that i've thought a lot about is is the way that he reads duchamp's ready made and he he, he talks about it in, in uh, schizophrenic cartographies and he also talks about it in chaosmosis and in both places he always premises he in both places he premises the reading of the ready-made with a reference to Bakhtin which is where he, he draws the ideas from but basically what he says is that there are these two moments involved in this kind of the chaosmosis produced by the aesthetic object and the first moment is a break so there is this kind of and this is where the ready-made is the perfect example. So it's like, it's basically a moment where our conditions of experience, if you like, are, are kind of broken down. So where, where the banality or the sort of taken for granted aspect of the object is, is, is sort of cut out. And that, that's the ready-made. That's the classic thing. So you've got an object which out of context, sort of exactly. And the, the Bakhtin, this is a, a Bakhtin's aesthetic theory. And so that's the first moment. And, and when that happens, he calls it, it creates what he calls a problematic effect. So this is actually not a, an effect that is directly connected to the object itself, but it's something that the object causes. And it's a feeling yeah. of, uh, it's a kind of a raised existential awareness. So it's like, it's like at this moment, we're kind of closer to being somehow is the way that he explains it. So that we kind of, we have this experience of being itself, a kind of material existence, which is no, no longer kind of so directly or easily understood according to kind of subject object relationships or whatever. It's like a, a kind of existential experience, if you like. And then this is then the condition for a kind of proliferation of affect, which kind of bursts out of the object in every single direction. And this is why when I read UIQ, at first I thought, ah, these, these weird mutations, that's like this moment. But it's also figured not, it's not figured so positively as it is in the case of the ready-made. So what he says then with the ready-made is the ready-made just kind of explodes into, into a whole multiplicity of possible subjectivities. So basically there's the break and then there is this kind of creative explosion 
which not only expresses in a way the world of virtual possibility which the break has enabled or has actualized but it also constructs the world anew which is its kind of political aspect as well in fact this is a something that he drew from from the biologists Varela and Maturana this term of autopoiesis which is very very frequent in chaosmosis in particular and this idea is that the individual is able to separate itself from the world uh, as an expression of that world but it's also in the sense that we often talk today about plasticity it's also able to kind of construct the world for itself and this construction then feeds back into the world and changes the world so okay. it's it's and you know we find this double movement all the time so if you think about the body without organs in a thousand plateaus you have the same thing they say well you can make the body without organs and then of course there's various programs by which you make it there's drug use there's masochism etc etc but it's not enough just to make the body without organs because to just make the body without organs you're just sort of left in this kind of pure imminence of becoming right. if you like but there's like you you know nothing's really kind of happening it's like a pure experience but it's not really going anywhere so they say well you have to kind of do something you have to to make something happen on the body without organs and that's the second part of the the process right so you know you can have your contract with with the mistress if you're a masochist which kind of creates the body without organs but then you've got to kind of do something with it so you've got to explore it you've got to kind of explore the kind of sexualities the non-genital sexualities that are possible on a body without organs the body without organs having been created by the contract that you make with the mistress so you know th this sort of double action i think it, it is a common figure that you find in Deleuze and Guattari and and i think you find it in UIQ as well but it's played out so ambiguously which is not the case in other areas so you know if you read the the chapter on or the plateau let's say of, of on the BWO on the body without organs in a thousand plateaus you know it's like ah oh, that's one of the great attractions to young readers right it's like oh wow yeah like the drug takers and the masochists are the cool guys you know I mean they're you know they're the positive examples kind of thing and it, it's interesting but of course there are you know qualifications to that because they're also going to talk about drug taking in the becoming chapter as as you know containing its own institutions which i, right. I think is interesting because you yeah. know Guattari's second wife was a was a drug addict and died of a died of an overdose so he clearly had a very direct contact with the whole milieu i mean this is often put forward by people who want to say that they're not as radical as all that because there are these kind of warnings that come up in a thousand plateaus uh i know you've spoken on the program before about this perception of a thousand plateaus as perhaps being a kind of step back from the radicality of uh the antiedipus but i think what's interesting about uiq you know maybe we we can kind of draw an end to this sort of speculation about its emotional valences is that the thing that's so fascinating about Antiedipus right is that in this relationship between schizophrenia and capitalism at least in a certain way of reading it 
is that there's no outside to the relationship, right? So there is no schizophrenia without capitalism and there is no capitalism without schizophrenia. You know, Lyotard, for example, is going to criticize the book because he's going to say, well, actually, that's not entirely true. And, you know, there is a sense in the book that schizophrenia is somehow the positive pole of the relationship and that it needs to be somehow separated from capitalism in order to be able to operate to its highest effect. And, and he is, you know, going to go on a slightly different trajectory in libidinal economy where he's going to, you know, famously say that there is no difference and that the worker working in the satanic mills of England enjoys their destruction in the factory. Yeah. And that's, you know, <laughs> it's this great line from that book that I love. It's actually the title of a, of a piece that I'm working on at the moment. He says, hold on tight and spit on me. <laughs> And then he goes into this. Then he goes into this big rave about the worker in the in in, in the factories and in early industrial England and how they enjoyed, you know, the destruction of their bodies and the banality of the suburbs. He also says, and all of these things. And that's like a total affirmation of everything that we would regard politically as being negative about the oppression of the working class or the exploitations of the working class, right? And Leotard's saying, no, you can't say that because desire and capitalism, it's you can't separate them. You know, you can't say no one and not the other. It doesn't work like that. It's like yeah. they're, they're completely imminent to each other, yeah? And there is an aspect of that also, I think, in, 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 in Anti-Oedipus, right? Because, you know, one line summary of Anti-Oedipus is, is desiring production is social production, which would be like this idea that you, you can't have one without the other. They're, they're, they're always co-implicated. And it's just a question of understanding what the nature of the syntheses are that are producing, you know, the society that are producing the various disjunctive syntheses by which desire operates and so forth and so on. So if you think about it like that, then I think UIQ maybe makes a little bit more sense that it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a little bit maybe towards the Leotard reading, which is that, okay, you know, it's not just a matter of swapping sides. It's not just right. about saying, all right, okay, we're just going to be like total hippies now and let desire control all aspects of our life and we're going to become these blazing lights of expression showing the complexity and multiplicity of the unconscious. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that, you know, and yeah. you've got to kind of, you got to kind of live through the process and it's going to involve pain and it's going to involve some totally weird shit. <laughs> and, Maybe that's that's the kind of you know that's that's kind of the story of the screenplay as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I you know because it's it's really interesting to me to think about all of this because I've been working on the early Leotard, and to me the libidinal economy is such a kind of sequel to Andy Oedipus in a way because it's like it takes so much of the same dynamic, but it. It, it, it kind of twists it in a slightly different way. You know, it, it's much more Freudian, yeah, in its in its background. But it's also much more it's much more kind of amoral in the way that it tries to understand capitalism. And you know, the more we've I've been kind of talking about it now, the more I think maybe this would be a way that you could kind of 
push into UIQ if you wanted to understand this ambiguous emotional tenor of the ending. Right, okay. You know, but of course, Leotard, there's nothing emotionally <laughs> ambiguous about Leotard, you know, like <laughs> Leotard's like, let's go, you know, and it's that McLand kind of vibe, you know, it's like the thing that McLand right. loves about the early Leotard is just that it's, it's you know, acceleration. And so it's it's kind of, you know, I always think, it's the heavy metal track, you know, it's just, it's about that train going faster and faster and faster and faster, you know, and it's like, you can't get off. And that's the rush. That's the rush. And I think there's something kind of sort of satanic about it that you definitely get in the gland and, 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 you know, maybe not so much in Leotard, but, but it's in there somehow as well. And it's a, it's, it's a kind of, you know, there's a joyous laughter to the Hail Satan. But it's not an aesthetic that you get in Deleuze and Guattari. Deleuze and Guattari is much more respect. You know, weird thing to say, but I think in the way they treat art, there's a lot of respect. Yeah, I think it's interesting uh, in the context of Leotard as far as the um, unconscious enjoyment of your (laughs) own destruction by capital. I don't know, that's a fascinating, that's the kind of thing that makes my ears perk up, I think. Yeah, but that's not, I don't think it's unconscious, you see, I think that's the point. Oh, okay. See, I would say that, says, yeah, it's, I would say that reminds me of like, an, they're not conscious of the destruction. I mean, there is a certain like, okay, the, through the, like something like the Protestant work ethic, for example. So there is the enjoyment in a sense is that your degradation through hard work is, is a good. Right, but that redeems you from original sin, right? Right. So I don't think that's the story in Leotard. Yeah. You know, in, in Leotard, the point is, is that he's saying, the working class choose it. They want it. They, and the reason why they want it is because, on his account, this destruction of the human is the most radical political force. And that's yeah, libidinal that's desire. Uh-huh. Libidinal desire is about destroying the human. And destroying the human is basically the ultimate political gesture. Okay. And, you know, for Leotard as well, art is going to be super central to that. And what's so interesting about Leotard is that he basically rejects an absolutely straight up and, and super serious Marxist militant background in favor of art. And so, you know, discourse figure 1971 is basically going to be the beginning of his total rejection of Marx and his embrace of the aesthetic as the political mechanism. And before that, he's, you know, he's, he's a, he's a leftist Marxist involved in small militant groups, regularly writing for the communist, various communist journals and working as a militant in Algeria, you know, where he's teaching for a long period of time as well. So everything ticks all the boxes, you know, from the point of view of a kind of leftist militant. Right. But then, it's, I think, 68, which is basically where he changes direction because out of all of the French generation of philosophers, he's the one who's most active, like on the ground, if you want to put it like that, yeah. in 68. And, um, and that leads to this extraordinary moment, you know, which I think you can also find in, in Deleuze and Guattari as well, where the aesthetic becomes kind of the central question, political question, basically. And it's the aesthetic which is going to work against the discursive, against the conceptual, against subjectivity, against consciousness, against 
the human, basically. And I mean, my book about the sublime, it, it follows this trajectory in, in, in Deleuze Guattari and Lyotard and Lancier and Derrida. Doesn't always play out in the same way, but Lyotard and Toulouse and Guattari are the closest of those. And for all three of them, it's the aesthetic which is has the ability to kind of break open the human as a framework for our experience and as, let's say, also the condition of our consciousness and the way that we think and the way that we operate politically is oriented around this kind of central the central kind of core of the human. And you get, okay, they, it has different names and the different thinkers, but basically what you have is you have the libidinal or you have desire is basically the unconscious force which has the ability to break open these frameworks and make us feel something yeah, which is no longer recuperable in terms of, you know, concepts, language, subject object you know it has an ontological ontopolitical power right. let's put it like that an ontopolitical power of the aesthetic i think what normally happens is that art is understood in its terms but in a really kind of positive way it's 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 imbued with this kind of liberatory ecstatic liberatory trajectory like you know it's the revolution and okay, we tried the revolution in 68 for real, but like we didn't quite manage to push it over the line politically. So now we can go on a different trajectory, which is that we can have the revolution every day, you know, because it's art. And I think, you know, you can understand, I think, a lot of Deleuze and Guattari and, and Leotard in this way. This is where they come really close together, this destruction of the human and the way the aesthetic can destroy the kind of conditions of possibility that are embodied in the human being. But with Leotard, it's kind of, you know, I don't know, there's a kind of a glee about that libidinal Leotard that is all about giving the finger to not to the establishment because they're all doing that, but to the other kind of philosophical figures who don't take it that far. And, you know, that it's that real kind of, you know, spit on me and hang on tight, you know. It's like, here we go. It's like we're going to go to the edge. And then, of course, later he's going to repudiate the book and call it his evil book. But it's exactly that evilness. It's exactly that kind of hail Satan attitude that Nick Land is going to pick up and run with because he, he loves that as well. But in the end, Deleuze and Guattari, of course, are right because, you know, it so easily reduces to, you know, cliche and banality because, you know, then you just get the sex, drugs and rock and roll philosopher, you know, which would be a kind of slightly mean way of describing Nick Land, maybe at least in the early periods. To, so in a way, I think I managed to come around and actually convince myself that I, I liked the ending of UIQ, <laughs> even though at the beginning I was kind of thinking, oh, shit, maybe what is this? Is this just some kind of moral tirade against bourgeois relationships? But maybe maybe it's more challenging to that if we're prepared to kind of... Yeah, embrace the sort of inhuman outside alterity. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's, it's because the thing that makes it difficult is because the... The, the character of Janice at the end, after the merger with UIQ, it's so it's so briefly sketched in. Yeah. So you don't really get a big feel for it, you know, like exactly what's going on. And that's the thing 
you know, that makes me a bit suspicious of it because then it feels like a moral that's just kind of laid on you at the end. But maybe that's unfair and maybe maybe we need to be a bit more generous in the way that we approach it. Yeah, from a sort of, I, I mean, if your perspective is that of, of one of like a human of a humanness or humanity in that sense, like in the philosophical sense of humanism, anti-humanism, right? Like I think if you're ready to break from that sort of anthropomorphic position, then I think you're free to look at the ending in a different light, perhaps. Like maybe it's your own humanness that is threatened by the ending. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's definitely your security as a as a kind of consumer of the object is called into question because you know you, you're not you have to step outside of what your normal reaction to it would be to get anything out of it that isn't just simply a kind of moral story yeah about the dangers of you know adolescent love yeah but i don't know i'm not sure about it <laughs> what do you think you mentioned I, the bit about i mean i think the aestheticization which i can never say so what's the the refrain is something about fascism being the aestheticization of politics right so i wonder what has that been to mean so i wonder is that where this comes is that where things hollywood equals hitler hitler equals hollywood that's that's you know the phrase that Deleuze quotes from benjamin in cinema two towards the end i guess that's that's exactly you know i mean that's what we're talking about if we're talking about a generosity that the script requires from us at the end, then what we're talking about is definitely stepping away from a kind of, you know, accepted understanding of the signs. I guess the question from the point of view of the kind of artistic object is whether the object is able to do that to us, right? Because that's the thing that's like the genius of Duchamp, right? From Guattari's perspective is that He's able to create this break so easily by simply presenting to us this everyday object out of context. And, you know, I mean, personally, I think there's a, it's such a great reading because, you know, it definitely puts the ready-made at the beginning of kind of modern and contemporary art, but it does it in a completely different way from the way that it's normally understood, which is as the beginning of conceptual art. So as a kind of reflection on the epistemological question of what is art, that's the that's the more or less the kind of received received understanding of Duchamp's ready-made. But Guattari says, well, yes, the, the ready-made is somehow the beginning of modern and contemporary artistic practice, but not for that reason, <laughs> for a totally different reason, which is that, you know, it, it kind of breaks with our received understandings of the object and enables it to become completely creative. And, you know, I think that's maybe a criteria by which we could, you know, that we could use in relationship to the UIQ script is that, you know, well, okay, the ready-made is able to do that through this like extraordinarily simple artistic gesture, but does the script of UIQ do that? Like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, because I think that's the thing about Videodrome is that what is so extraordinary in the film is that, you know, it starts off with the assumption that almost all film has certainly all science fiction film, which is that what you are seeing is real. Like from, from the perspective of like that chair is a chair and that door is a door and everything that's happening 
that you see on the screen is like you can understand that as being kind of real life. And in video drawing, what happens is that that starts to shift and we start to get in the situation where there are hallucinations, but it's not clearly, at first it is clearly indicated by the film itself that these are hallucinations. So there's various classic, you know, classic ways of doing that. So sort of altering the, shaking the screen or introducing colors or whatever. And that certainly happens at the beginning when Max starts to hallucinate, but then after a while that stops. And so we're not given any sign by the film that what we're seeing is a hallucination or what we're seeing is real. And so at that moment, our kind of, all of our frame of reference is basically taken away from us and we no longer know whether whether it's a hallucination by the character or whether it's actually happening. And I think that's really interesting because that's the device the film uses to kind of completely throw us into a situation where we can experience really different things from the film because we're no longer relating to it in this kind of received way, like that it's real, that it's not real, that it's, you know. The screenplay, I don't know, maybe this kind of, this mass mutation is a way that it's supposed to maybe throw us out of our normal ways of relating to the object, but then I think maybe not because it's really played a lot for laughs and that just, you know, puts us into a very clear and kind of accepted position or comfortable position in a way. So I don't know. I don't know. But now we're talking about a kind of art criticism of the screenplay. We're not really talking about <laughs> Guattari's <laughs> ideas. but um, I am sort of interested, though. So this has been on my mind as I mentioned a little bit when we talked about getting the episode, all, all of the sort of our pre, pre-episode meeting, when we talked about, I think uh, I brought up the figure of um, of Hearst, of Damien Hearst, and his sort of the cabinets of, I forget if they're the cabinets of wonders or whatever the case may be, but it's taking that notion of the ready-made and like really running with it and taking it to a sort of nth degree. I like those works, but they're not my favorite ones. I mean, I'm more traditional, you know, I really like the, the shark. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's a fantastic. I love that too. But those, I don't know, something about yeah. those cabinets is. Fa- I mean, the me- I've showed you too, like the med- medicine cabinet. I mean, I don't know. There's something profound going on. I I think <laughs> mm. or maybe I'm just uh, my shallowness or something. But to me, that I don't know. I, those I love that stuff. I think it's yeah. I mean, I I just think from the Guattarian point of view, you know, the question is, you know, what is the becoming that they. Yeah take you on and you know the becoming has to be real because that's the definition of a becoming it's real it's not imaginary or metaphorical or you know anything like that it's real so what is that you know i mean it can be anything like that's not predetermined so you know that's not part of the there are no criteria about what that is the criteria is kind of ontological in a way so it's not a question about is what it makes you feel good or bad or whatever. It's not about that. It's about like, is there an ontological shift, right? From being to becoming, you know, do you experience the object as 
no longer as an object, but as part of yourself, perhaps, or no longer yourself, but as a kind of partial object, which is in the process of transformation. I mean, these are the kind of, you know, ontological questions, questions that are right. difficult to approach right. through through language because language operates according to a whole lot of assumptions that this becoming is supposed to escape. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why Guattari invented this extraordinary vocabulary, uh, which is just basically full of neologisms that he's invented to describe something that somehow can't really be captured in language, but he's trying, you know, frantically trying to invent words that might grasp them. Yeah, I think this is, you know, this is the thing that I think for me, someone who works a lot with contemporary art, something that I find very compelling about Deleuze and Guattari, but also about Lieta as well, is this emphasis on the aesthetic, which is super radical and ontological in their account, but also seems to completely deviate from the path that contemporary art took, most particularly after the late 60s and the beginning of conceptual art. So it's like this is, you know, this strange kind of thing that they come up with this very, to me at least, attractive idea about the aesthetic and the, let's say, ontopolitical centrality of the artwork, which for me as a, as a person who, who very much enjoys art, that, that's like totally cool. Yeah. But it's not really the path that art took, <laughs> you know, because art, art took the path which is much more about art as being a kind of theoretical process where the aesthetic is in many ways uh, subordinated to the to the idea, to the to the kind of um, to the concept. I mean, that's like a classic thing that people will say, like faced with an artwork, like what's the what concept? Does it mean, yeah. What does it mean? And now you also get a lot of work now where the meaning of the work is not communicated by the work, and you need a supplementary linguistic element to explain to you what you're looking at and that's normal that's not a problem right that's so that's interesting right that i think younger artists now they don't see there being the strong distinction between a linguistic theoretical element and the actual object the aesthetic element that it's totally fine for them to be separate and you just have to find some kind of alternative delivery system to get the conceptual content to the viewer. So that can be a, a printed page, it can be a it can be an internet thing, it can be someone telling directly to the viewer, explaining what the what the situation is. And that's all part of the work. That's all part of the work. And so that's interesting because, you know, Often people would criticize that, like many years ago, you know, toward maybe around the beginning of the century where people, you know, said, well, that's a problem, that the work itself doesn't explain what it's about. And there's no way you can tell. There's no way that the viewer can, can grasp what it's about because you need the information. Right. And that's a problem. But nowadays it doesn't seem to me like that's a problem at all. That's not considered a problem. So that's a big shift for me because that's like, that means that the aesthetic is not the kind of foremost element that 
the theoretical element is equal with the aesthetic element, and if anything, it determines the aesthetic element because without the theoretical information, you don't know what's going on with the physical element. So, you know, these these things, these 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 relationships have, have changed, and I think that's not what Deleuze and Guattari and also not what Leotard are talking about when they're talking about art, because they're interested in the aesthetic element that works against that conceptual linguistic element. And so that's why, for example, Deleuze is so interested in stuttering, right? Because that's a really easy way to think about it. So stuttering is like that part of language that isn't language, right? So that's like that physical aesthetic aspect, a material, if you like, aspect of language that emerges with language and kind of works against it. The A-signifying. Exactly, the A-signifying. And that's what what Guattari was all about, is about the emergence, this emergence, the emergence of this element. So where that is in the UIQ, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say. I love that film. Uh, on the Silver Globe. Oh man, that's immediately what I thought of as far as oh. the space for the commune. Yeah, that it's it's such. I mean, that film kind of totally expanded my mind about what a science fiction film could be. I need to rewatch it, but I did get a vibe in a certain sense. There was I a mean, few films that came to mind with with UIQ, and this was one of them. And I think primarily this this aesthetic of the open space for the commune. I mean, the thing about this film that's really weird from a Western kind of point of view is like, it's unbelievably emotionally intense. So it's just, it's just emotionally dialed up to 11 the whole time. And that was really weird to me. I, I wasn't, I wasn't used to that. I couldn't think of any real equivalence to that. But I talked to a friend of mine, a Polish friend of mine, and she said to me, oh, all Polish films are like that. (laughs) So I don't know. I haven't watched too many Polish films to verify it, but it was kind of interesting to me that, you know, that it was like a a kind of a national characteristic. (laughs) Have you, you've seen Possession, I take it as well. Uh, The other Zulowski film. I haven't seen that. Is it worth seeing? I think so. Um, it may even have some relevance here because I guess in the, uh, I don't want to spoil the film necessarily, but yeah, it's, um, I think maybe some of these notions of the other and becoming animal and mm. doppelgangers and, and things like that. But also I, there is a certain overlap because the film centers around this husband and wife in Berlin and, it's during it's you know it's shot during I think eighty one or so, and uh, largely in one, the wife has a, an apartment in Kreuzberg, so like the Turkish section of the city in in East Berlin, and the husband who is um, God the actor, Sam Neil, is the husband and stuff is <laughs> Sam Neil. Okay, yeah. that you just ruined it for me because I hate <laughs> Sam Neil. You hate Sam Neil. I hate Sam Neil. Oh, I can't stand him. It's because he's a. It's because he's a New Zealander. <laughs> but you have to understand about Sam Neill because, yeah. Anyway, Sam Neill is like this really annoying kind of conservative cultural figure. Gotcha. Who Makes sense. Weighs in on political issues in New Zealand. 
But there's a similar sort of edible relationship, uh, a jealousy between the husband and wife that also goes into the direction of the inhuman, almost like a Cthulhu or some type of other beast that the wife has a sort of affair with, sort of propels the action of the film. That That sounds interesting because it's funny that you mentioned the Cthulhu thing because... I, I call it the Lovecraft, Love, Lovecraftian, yeah, Lovecraftian sublime, yeah. right? Which is basically, this is a, it's like a classic figure in science fiction and horror and lots of different genres, but it's basically this moment where something is confronted that is so other that language is no longer capable of describing it. And that's figured in the text. So then right. the text will go on, will describe how it's not possible to say what, is appearing it's beyond any words and that that becomes this kind of limit that is figured in the text itself and to me that's like totally not Deleuze and Guattari right that's like anti Deleuze and Guattari because that's totally not the point the point is that there is something desire let's call it unconscious desire that is not or that can be embodied in language, that is embodied in language, but is not language, but also emerges in other moments which are non-linguistic, but which are aesthetic and which can be experienced. But there is no entity that lies, let's say, say outside in a pure sense, in that Lovecraftian sense, that kind of exists or has an existence that is outside, entirely outside, because... The outside, which is obviously super important for the and Guattari, is always an internal outside. So it's always an imminent outside. It's always inside everything else. So, Like UIQ, you know, right? Like UIQ, exactly. That's <laughs> exactly the point. Yeah, exactly. So that's the point about chaosmosis. It's, it's, not, it's the emergence of an outside, but it's only... It's always and only an emergence. I mean, emergence being an important term for Guattari. So it's always only appearing inside. It's not. It's it's never existing outside of the inside. It's it's an internal outside, which is a term that Deleuze uses to describe Foucault in his book on Foucault, but which becomes kind of quite common in the later work. Let us know, um, kind of, where we can find any of your work or what you're doing and what to look out for. I think you already did so in the beginning, but just as a reminder for anyone. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I have a page on, on academia.edu and there's a lot, a lot of my stuff is there. I, I had a cease and desist order on, on one of the things though. So you, you're not on social media at all though, right? Or not no, that you want to divulge. Really. Okay. Not really. I've dappled at various times, but I've either been... You're probably better off. You're probably more productive that way. I I get bored. get bored with it. And and I I was on Facebook at a very early point, and I kind of got annoyed with it because so many of my friends were using it as a replacement for telephone calls or emails, (laughs) and I found that... I found that annoying, but that's like a kind of early Facebook problem, really. It's not really relevant anymore, but it's like once I went off it, I didn't ever really feel the need to go back on it. So, um, But that was way back in the days where you kind of threw a sheep at someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you 
remember that, but that was like when it kind of started and it was super basic and that was like the most fun you could have on Facebook was throwing a sheep at someone and then and then I got annoyed because people would just throw a sheep at me and they wouldn't actually answer my email. <laughs> or that was their answer to the email and I'm like, what? Hang on. When did writing an email get replaced by throwing a sheep at me? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, I'm not. Although I have to say I was, I've been tempted to go into Twitter after seeing my friend, you know, I get some of your tweets kind of secondhand <laughs> from my friend Tony who sends them to me. <laughs> you might, uh, yeah, you might enjoy that. Uh, yeah, I, it's almost ready-made for with uh, with language, in a sense, is like what I sort of go for. Yeah, no, that that, that kind of looks cool. And I sort of yeah, I had, anyway, had had this idea of doing an analysis of Twitter, merging sort of Baudrillard and Lacan. Yeah, that sounds cool. But you know what I'm really looking forward to is your is is your podcast about Rick Owens. <laughs> Maybe I can get him one day. I had, yeah, I did talk. That would be so cool. A couple of things. I did actually. I met a pers- uh, a coworker here in Austin that made techno music. Randomly, I guess Rick found his music on SoundCloud, emailed them, and said, "Hey, can I use your music for one of my shows?" And then I think he ended up doing two shows where they used his music. Wow, so I had cool. him on one of the one of the first ten or so podcasts that I had. And so, did he have some like nice juicy gossip? Nothing about Rick too, or? nothing too crazy, other <laughs> than just some little details. Like Rick wrote his email in all caps, which sort of makes sense. <laughs> and then, I of love course, it. that's great. And then, of course, inviting them because uh, it's a group, a duo, and inviting them to the shows. But of course, they're in. France, so you, you know your own airfare to Paris, right? Yeah, yeah, he didn't, for, didn't pay them for. Yeah. He probably could have afforded it, though. No, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love that thing about all caps, though. That, that that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I wonder if I should just uh, say, "Hey, do you still have Rick's email?" <laughs> and I can email Rick. Yeah, right. Says. I totally. feel like he would not be. He doesn't seem like the kind of person that would even want to do a podcast? I think it would depend how you pitched it to him because, right. you know, I was following his Instagram for a while and it's super, like, I mean, at least what he shows on Instagram is like he's, like, going off to the museum every day or the art gallery or, like, super arty. Yeah. So if you went from that angle, maybe that might interest him. I don't know. I think it'd be more interesting to talk to his wife as I mentioned, that she uh, she was a protege of Eliza mm. Watari, and I think hung around Labord a bit. Mm. But that was more yeah. of a, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll <laughs> part of it. I think. Yeah, I've heard I've heard a few kind of salacious anecdotes from the Labor kind of day the days and scene, but. You know, as with many kind of famous people, you know, I've heard wildly, wildly different things yeah. about Guattari, you know, like, you know, you know, I was, I don't know how, it's too far away now. Yeah. You know, the 
the people who were involved don't always, you know, that's, they're not interested in talking about it, maybe. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. Your voice is very, I could listen to you talk for hours, honestly. <laughs> it's nice. Thanks. Well, I enjoyed it myself a lot and you know, it'd be great to stay in contact and oh, if there yeah, was anything absolutely. else you wanted me on, it would be a pleasure. Would love to. I'll, I'll keep All in right. touch, but uh, this will be uh, thanks again to Stephen Zepke. This will be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. Cheers. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.